Today's read, Asada, an autobiography written by Asada Shakur. Chapter 14. You are the property of the feds now. One of the marshals told me like he really believed it. We're taking you to MCC, the federal prison, Manhattan Correctional Center, where you'll stay while you stand trial for bank robbery. It was January 5th, 1976, 15 days after I had been acquitted on the kidnapping charge in Brooklyn Supreme Court. I was still on Rikers Island. He busied himself tying me up with what seemed an endless amount of chains and shackles. Another stupid looking marshal told me how sorry he was to see me again. He said I'd given him hell the last time. I didn't even recognize him. He said he had worked on the last other bank robbery trial and had gotten chewed out because I got pregnant. You were framed, I told him. <laughs> he looked at me all dumb, scratching his head. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I started to laugh. Even the other marshals started to crack up. It's not so funny, he said. I lost my commendation that went down to my record. I laughed even harder. The only way I can describe MCC is modern gray with dabs of colored paint here and there. It's one of those ugly inner city fortress buildings, anti-nature, anti-human, and cold to all the senses. There was no fresh air because the entire building was air conditioned and the only natural light came in from narrow glass slits cut into the side of the building and wired with alarms. The guards looked like space-age robotons with blue blazers, gray pants, and walkie-talkies and beepers. After I had been issued the standard uniform for women, a yellow jumpsuit and tennis shoes, I was led up to the women's section. To my absolute surprise, I was placed in general population, given a key to my cage, and told that there was no lock-in time. We were supposed to stand by the cell doors at various times of the day to be counted. The women's section was a relatively small area, comprising a central area for eating and recreation, a TV room, and three split-level tiers. There were a few office offices, one or two rooms that served as classrooms, and that was it. The only other place the women could go once in a while was to recreation on the roof, which was covered with huge metal anti-helicopter bars. After spending more than a month in that confining little place, the women were climbing the walls, and I'm sure the men, the men felt the same way. A few of the federal prisoners were big time with money and connections. They'd been arrested for more sophisticated crimes than the average state prisoner. But the majority were poor, black, or third world, just like in the state jails. But just like in the street, money talks. A lot of the men on the honor floor, which was on the same floor as the women, had money. And rumor had it that they would send their favorite guards out to buy them Chinese or Italian food or send them to the Jewish delicatessen depending on their mood. 
One drug dealer made frequent visits to the women's section in the wee small hours for conjugal visits with his wife. Since the men on the honor floor had contact with the women, many tried to buy them by sending them huge quantities of commissary items. Others tried to impress the women with tall tales about how much they had ripped off or how big they were on the street. I was sitting on the bench with this white guy, waiting for them to take me to court one morning, and he was steady talking one and two million dollar deals he had pulled off. He was some kind of con artist, busted for stock fraud. You shouldn't be here, I told him. You should be in the White House with all the other big time con artists. I was trying, he said. I was trying like hell. There were two sisters who I knew from Rikers. I was really happy to see them both. Skeets was a strong stand-up sister who kept her mouth shut, minded her business, and didn't take any shit from anybody. She was a real warm-hearted person, generous and open, and maintained a whole lot of humanity even though she was facing a hunk of time on a bank robbery case. I was shocked when I ran into Charlie, who I had known on Rikers as Charlene. She had changed completely. She was no longer the thin, round-faced young sister I had known on the rock. It was as if she had aged overnight. She had written some dynamite poetry and had been a part of our drama group. But this time, she had been arrested for a parole violation on a technicality and just didn't give a damn about anything anymore. She was bitter and tired. And her whole attitude can be summed up in two words that she frequently used. Shove it. She told me that her freedom depended on whether or not she passed a high school equivalency test. Everybody encouraged her to study, but she just didn't seem to care anymore. She said she was tired of jumping through hoops and didn't give a damn what happened. I understood how she felt, but I hated to see her so bitter and so hurt and nowhere to go with it. Nothing positive to apply it to. I wanted to help her, but I didn't know how, and I was only going to be there for a hot minute. The only thing that perked her up was the struggle the women got into to improve medical care at the jail. At the time, the health situation was horrible. Women came in off the street and were given no physical exam, no tests, no nothing. They had trouble seeing gynecologists and having their most basic needs met, medical or otherwise. Since we were a tiny minority of the prison population, our needs were ignored. The women got together and wrote complaints to the warden. Charlie was one of the women who worked the hardest to get better medical conditions. It's kind of ironic when I think about it now. A little more than a year later, I heard over the prison grapevine that Charlene had died from undiagnosed cancer of the uterus. The Queen's Bank robbery trial, which I was here for, was one of the wildest trials I ever went through. We had just finished with the Brooklyn kidnapping case, and I was not at all looking forward to going to trial again so soon.
For almost three years now, Evelyn had worked on my cases continuously. She had quit her job as a professor at New York University Law School on the day I was arrested on the turnpike to become my lawyer. One of the few cases she had accepted since my arrest, mostly to earn money, was ready for trial, and she couldn't postpone it any longer. So, I had to get someone else for my trial. Some of the brothers and sisters recommended Stanley Cohen to me. They said he was a good lawyer and would do a good job on this kind of case. I was hesitant because I had always had black lawyers representing me. I felt that they would probably be more understanding and more sensitive to the situation I was dealing with. I'm not talking about any old black lawyer because some of them make a whole lot of money and think like Richard Nixon. I'm talking about those who are concerned with the plight of black people. I was especially sensitive I was especially sensitive to the issue after months of listening to some of the sisters at Rikers. They were so brainwashed. They thought a white lawyer, any white lawyer, was better than a black lawyer. They also felt the same way about white doctors, white dentists, white teachers, etc. I ain't going to court with no black lawyer, they'd say. I want me a white lawyer who is friendly with the judge and ain't going to make her mad. I tried to tell them that it didn't matter what color the lawyer was. If the lawyer went against the judge and really put up a fight for the client, the judge was going to get mad. Few, if any, black defendants have ever been freed because the judge liked their lawyer. If you had a dime for every time a judge and a defense lawyer sat down to lunch and discussed some black client riding away in jail, you'd be able to stop working and live on the interest. I decided to talk with Cohen and see whether I thought he would be good for the case. Stanley was a middle-aged, Jewish, feisty-looking man who somehow reminded me of W.C. Fields. He had a dramatic streak in him and could change the tone and mood of his voice from indignant to pleading in a matter of seconds. He had a long list of acquittals in his record and told funny stories about the strategies he used in this or that trial. He had once been a member of the Communist Party and continued to have progressive politics. Why do you like being a criminal lawyer, I asked him. How can you stand to fight in the court system, knowing how much racism and injustice is involved? It was a loaded question, put out there to see how he would answer it. I expected him to say something like, somebody had to do it, somebody had to make the sacrifice. I like to win, he said. I do it because I like to win. I liked him and decided I wanted him to defend me on the bank robbery case. Evelyn gave Stanley the transcripts from the time I was beaten up in court by the U.S. Marshals trying to photograph me, together with all of the other documents in her file, and she worked with him on the trial strategy. Andrew Jackson had pled guilty, so I was on trial alone. 
Everything was rush, rush, rush. The railroad train was whistling and it could hardly wait to take me up the river. The new judge assigned to the case wanted the case over with and he wanted it over with fast. We wanted to question the prospective jurors about their opinions, what they had seen and heard in the media, etc. The judge was determined not to have a long voir dire, and so we compromised. A questionnaire was made up asking some of the questions we submitted and others that the prosecutor submitted. After we went through the answers, we were to pick or eliminate jurors, asking additional questions as needed. Some of the answers were so contradictory and such a study on the level of racism in America that it would take a book just to report on them. In 100% of the cases, we were able to tell whether the prospective juror was black, white, or other just by reading the answers. The trial had a lighthearted feel to it. Everyone had kind of decided that we would enjoy the fight and fight as hard as we could without worrying about whether we were going to win or lose. I don't think that there was a single one of us, with the possible exception of Afini Shakur, who really thought we were going to win. Afini, who was working as a legal assistant, kept telling me, we're going to win this one, Asada. But I sure as hell didn't believe it. They had taken a bank picture of a woman robbing a bank, printed my name under it as being positively identified and then placed that picture in newspapers, subway stations, and I think even on the sides of buses. They had this picture posted in every bank in New York. There was not a person in New York who went to the bank, rode the subway, or walked the streets who had not seen that photograph with my name printed under it a thousand times. There was no way of even counting how many times that picture had been flashed on television with the announcer calling out my name. The public had been so saturated with that image that I felt it was crazy to take this trial seriously. After Stanley was familiar with some of the facts, I had asked him what he thought my chances were. I'd be lying if I told you that they look good. In reality, they look pretty lousy, but I believe you, and I'm going to fight for you. And believe me, I like to fight. We agreed that I would act as co-counsel on the case. You're a lousy lawyer, he would tell me every time we got into an argument over some strategy. But you're better than a lot of lawyers I know who passed the bar. The atmosphere was electric. The courtroom was packed every day with sisters and brothers who had come to watch the circus. I couldn't stop staring. I've always said that the best thing about being on trial is getting to see and smile at the spectators. Seeing so many beautiful people in the courtroom gave us the push we needed to get down and take care of business. I felt that way during all of my trials, but this trial had an atmosphere that made it even more special. People 
from all over the black community dropped by. The Muslim sisters and brothers brought their prayer rugs and broke out into prayer in the hallway of the courthouse. People brought their children explaining what was happening. One little girl broke up the whole courtroom when she asked out loud, Is that the fascist pig mommy? Pointing up at the judge. It was as if black folks had just taken over the courtroom, letting everybody know that they were watching what was going down. The first thing we did was ask for a lineup. The way I had been identified was from a photo. The FBI had selected my photograph from the quote-unquote militant casebook. This book contained the photographs of all the militants the FBI wanted to send to prison. After they had gotten my photograph out of the militant casebook, they put it in with a few other photographs of women. Of course, mine, a mugshot, was the only one with numbers across the front of it. The rest were normal pictures. The FBI then showed this group of pictures to the robbery witnesses and asked them to identify someone who somewhat resembled or bore a likeness to the woman who robbed the bank. Two of the people who were in the bank signed affidavits saying that the photograph with the numbers across it, my mugshot, looked somewhat like the woman. The rest who had been in the bank at the time of the robbery made no such identification. We told the judge we wanted a lineup because we thought the initial identification of me as the bank robber was suggestive and tainted. But before the judge had arranged for the lineup, the prosecutor called one of the so-called witnesses to testify. Since I was the only black woman sitting in the defendant's chair, of course he identified me. We protested the procedure but the judge admitted his testimony anyway. We finally did arrange for a lineup, and of course, the other so-called witness picked out another woman. Since the photo identification part of the case was based on nothing more than all niggas look alike, the FBI tried to use scientific evidence to gain a conviction. Their plan to superimpose the bank surveillance photo over my photograph failed because they had only one photo of me that was taken at the same angle as the bank robbery picture. It was one of the photographs taken when they assaulted me in the courtroom before the trial began when I refused to let them take my picture. The FBI had blocked out the faces and hands of the marshals and FBI agents choking and assaulting me. They had cropped the picture so that the only thing the jury could see was my face, but my facial expression in the photograph was one of such agony that it was hard for them to convince the jury of anything else. So the FBI came up with a brilliant idea. They brought in some dude from the FBI who said he was an expert on identifying photographs by examining them under a microscope. He was a real pro slick as grease. He had charts and diagrams and whatnot, and I was worried to death that the jury would go for that graph. He sounded real good until it came time for cross-examination. It turned out that he was a specialist in paleontology and had spent a lot of time studying rocks. He tried to claim that his expertise at examining rocks made him able to identify people, 
under cross-examination, all his carefully constructed expertise turned into a pile of rocks, and this new technical breakthrough in crime-fighting proved to be nothing but a fraud. Because the prosecution had been allowed to introduce this new scientific evidence, the judge said we had the right to find a photographic expert to rebut the testimony. Since I didn't have a dime, the court agreed to pay for it. The day our photograph expert testified, I slumped down in the seat. He was a real straight-looking white guy who looked like he subscribed to Reader's Digest. But the guy had credentials in photography a mile long and you could tell from the way he talked that he loved photography and that he was incensed over what the FBI was trying to do. He explained to the jury the chemical process of photography and that what the FBI agent had said was absolutely impossible. He said that if you look at a photograph under a microscope, all you will see is a little dots. All you will see is little dots. His testimony was so correct and his facts so together that the prosecutor barely bothered to cross-examine him. The capper came when the manager of the bank came forward to testify in my behalf. He said that I was definitely not the woman who robbed the bank and that the robber was a different height and weight from mine. We could see the prosecutor quietly creep under his table. His last hope was the summation. In his closing statement, he tried to make up for everything he had not proved with the evidence. He painted me as an evil, conniving monster. He told the jury that I was hiding the fact that I had big, fat arms, like the woman who was shown robbing the bank, that I was concealing my arms because I had not worn a sleeveless dress in court. The trial was held in the middle of January. As he was talking, I politely rolled up my sleeves right there in the courtroom, exposing my very thin arms. When he got to the final part of his closing, he grew strangely confident. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this woman is very clever, very conniving. She has tried to deceive this jury in every way. But she made one mistake, ladies and gentlemen. She made one fatal error. He then held up a picture of the woman robbing the bank, and in the other hand, he held up my mugshot picture. She made one mistake, he kept repeating. She forgot to change her earrings. She has the same earrings on. The prosecutor was so dramatic. The scene was straight out of the movies. You could tell he had been watching the late show. Both the woman in the bank and I had on hoop earrings. When Stanley summed up, he just said, Will all the women in the courtroom who have on hoop earrings please stand up? Half the women rose to their feet. While the jury was out deliberating, I paced back and forth in the holding pen. They're going to convict me anyway, I told Daphne. They probably weren't even listening. That jury isn't going to convict you, Asada, Afini replied. Didn't you see the faces of those jurors, especially the black ones? 
It was true. I had seen them look at me differently after the truth started coming out. And I knew that the black jurors in the deliberating room would make all the difference in the world. If nothing else, they remind some of the more racist whites that black people are human beings. It's a shame that too many black people try to avoid jury duty instead of trying to slow down the railroad. A lot of times, it's a matter of simple economics. Black people often feel they can't afford to sit on a jury, that the money they would lose would mean a sacrifice for their family, and they're probably right. But their sitting on a jury might mean that their neighbor's son or daughter doesn't end up frying in the electric chair or rotting away behind bars. A verdict had been reached. I could tell what it was before we even entered the courtroom. The pigs were upset, to put it mildly. The female guard who escorted me to court every day seemed glad. The jury read the verdict. Acquittal. The courtroom broke into a loud cheer. The judge just gave up calling for order. He had to wait for the shouting to die down. It was a long time coming. All the spectators were jumping around, hugging each other. The marshals let me out of the courtroom and handcuffed me. They brought me back to Rikers Island, where I was put into solitary confinement.